Hello, I'm Amanda Taylor, and this is My First Name is Agent, a regular report of my journey to watch all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm doing some special edition episodes and revisiting all the Spider-Man movies from before Spidey was allowed to be in the MCU. Today's topic, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So I've only seen this movie once. I think, for obvious reasons, it just kind of traumatized me. When the movie was being promoted at STCC, I happened to be working at Entertainment Weekly and got to be involved in several related events, including a moment where I brushed past Andrew Garfield on purpose so I could touch him. Emma Stone was not present, but I think that's for the best because I might have combusted if I had to meet her. I also used my connections to demand a spoiler. Did this movie kill Gwen Stacy? And the reporter who wrote the cover story and spent time on set was gracious enough to tell me the truth, so I was prepared. But was I? Even in rewatching, I found that I couldn't witness the actual moment. I kept telling myself, it's okay, she is alive, she has an Oscar now, it's not real. But I just, like, couldn't. So I skipped that part, and I cried anyway. Gwen is barely in this movie. It misuses her in a lot of ways, and she actually gets kidnapped, which is a bummer. She does, however, make it very clear that she is in control of her life, and it is her choice to help her superhero boyfriend in dangerous times. She remains a fantastic role model and brilliant scientist to her last. Some other sort of random tidbits about this movie. Peter uses the traditional Spider-Man theme song as a ringtone and he whistles it at a guy in time with webbing him up. Is the implication that in this universe Peter Parker wrote his own theme song? Because I honestly would buy that. Peter is also now apparently a photographer for the Bugle, but it's kind of glossed over and a minor thing that I assume they meant to expand on in future movies and maybe have him date Betty. They built an interesting little zoo of animal testing and animal-themed villains and animal-slash-human hybrids in this particular branch of the Spider-Verse. I like it. They even set up for the Sinister Six, which makes my spidey senses tingle, but, you know, we didn't get it, so boo. Having seen this movie only once, something I want to keep emphasizing, I forgot BJ Novak, Chris Cooper, Felicity Jones, and even a tiny baby cameo by A.D. Bryant were awaiting me. Obviously, none of their performances impacted me much, and indeed, I have no idea how they were going to swing setting up Felicity Jones' character as Felicia Hardy, aka the Black Cat, though I know that was the intention. The unfortunate thing is that Dane DeHaan is bringing it in this movie. His arc is random and abrupt, but that's not the actor's fault, and he really unhinges in a believable way. I wish he'd been saved as a more major focus and had a longer runway to become Green Goblin. Also, why isn't Dane DeHaan a bigger star? He is so compelling. The problems with The Amazing Spider-Man 2 are, it's just not very fun, it's not very funny, and there are too many characters. I want more of Gwen, more of Aunt May going to nursing school, and fewer villains. Fewer villains. Why don't these people ever learn? And why did I need to watch a 10-minute sequence in the third act that introduced a bunch of pilots and air traffic controllers? That was just straight-up bizarre. Especially because I've actually been on the ground in New York City when the power goes out, and it is weird, man. You don't need to raise the stakes that high. You have a good thing going. 
And that applies to the Green Goblin as well. I just didn't buy that there were two characters who over the course of two hours went from melancholy neglect to rageful vengeance at Spider-Man. Some of the coincidences in the story are great. I think it's cool that Richard Parker's blood helped engineer the spiders that bit his son to turn him super. And I like that Max Dillon has a personal connection to Spider-Man that sours when he feels betrayed by him. Which brings me to the whole Electro situation. Besides his extremely Dr. Manhattan-like appearance, Electro was pretty cool. He's really powerful, and the visual elements that go with the destruction he creates are beautiful. But there are a few things about his character that made me really uncomfortable as an audience in 2020, especially given current events. To this point, this is the main black character in all of the Spider-Man movies, and he not only becomes the villain, but he loses his human form. This is a pretty common issue in comic book movies, casting people of color only to take that a bit too literally and making them aliens or altered humans. It smacks of fear and reluctance, and it sucks. Max is a capable electrical engineer whose work is stolen by his white boss to create a power grid he gets absolutely no credit for. He continues to go to work, even being the one person his boss tells to stay behind on a Friday night, like an essential worker. Go clean up a mess that isn't anybody's fault, but now it's become your responsibility. Then he freaking dies, violently, and they cover it up. It's pretty sinister and incredibly unsettling. Max only retaliates when he realizes he's been trying to win in a broken, corrupt system that is never going to give him the space to succeed. The scene in Times Square made me so, so uncomfortable because it's all about how Spider-Man is working with the NYPD to take down criminals. There's also a lot of voiceover in the film that implies that many citizens think the cops should just do their job within the law without the assistance of Spider-Man. So I live in New York. I'll never call myself a New Yorker, but I do live here. And I have never heard anyone say a nice or trusting thing about the NYPD. I mean, clearly this movie is written by a certain generation that is perpetuating the false image of police officers being just and noble and fabulous. Watching them surround a black man who is literally saying over and over that what he was doing wasn't his fault, was beyond his control, and had his hands up made me sick to my stomach. It's an extremely unfortunate recurring theme in the Spider-Verse that cops are either with or against him, but either way, they're very present. And ultimately, since all these movies have this false patriotic New York pride, they definitely fall on the side of policemen are just and have the right intentions. In New York City especially, I think we can all agree that this is not the case. With recent policies like stop and frisk condoned by local leaders and a general undercurrent of racism in the entire city, it's just irresponsible to portray law enforcement the way this movie does. In all of the science fiction of people getting powers from animals and serums, that issue rang the most false. A fellow fangirl and cosplayer, Damfino, who I follow on Instagram, posted about how her fandom reflects her politics. She said something like, I mean it when I say I want to be these principled, hopeful characters. I dress up like them because that gives me a bit more strength to do the right thing. I unfortunately have to paraphrase because she removed the post after some negative comments. But it made me think. Hope has always been a major central part of the Spider-Man movies, and this one even has a moment where a kid dressed as Spider-Man stands up to a real-life villain. I guess if I'm watching these movies and siding with rebels, vigilantes, and other justice bringers, where does that put me in the real world? The reason I love Spider-Man, and the reason I will keep coming back to these movies and Peter Parker, is because good wins. Hope, 
love, light, all positive things win. But not because anyone sits around, because he steps up. His great power leads to great responsibility. His ability to respond to injustice and the horrors of the world. So put your fandom where we can see it and fight. Until next time, on My First Name is Agent. <laughs>